Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting my favorite guest, Paul Moore. Welcome to the show, Paul. I appreciate your time today. It's great to be here, Sakar. Awesome, awesome. Uh, thank you, Paul. And a little bit about Paul. Uh, Paul started his career with Ford Motor, uh, Motor Company, and he founded the. Uh, after that, he founded his staffing company, and he sold the staffing company after a few years and went into real estate. Uh, today, he is a proud owner of Willings Capital, a big ma uh, capital management firm who has established several funds. Their focus is self-storages and other alternative classes. Uh, he is the uh, author of popular book, The Perfect uh, Investment, Creating Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing and Storing, uh, and storing Up Profits, uh, Capitalize on America's Obsession with Stuff. So welcome to the show, Paul. I appreciate your time. Uh, you want to kick off by giving us a few more uh, tidbits about your background and how you got started with uh, uh, and came into commercial uh, side of the house uh, with, uh, you know, with your Wellings Capital? Yeah. So when I sold my company at 33 years old, um, I first of all found out that so-called semi-retirement was really, really boring. I was a high energy entrepreneur in my mid thirties and uh, just a big mistake to think about, uh, you know, retiring at that age. And so I <clears throat> decided I would be a full-time investor. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't a full-time investor. I lied to myself, I actually became a full-time speculator because I did not know the difference between investing and speculating. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And I didn't know the difference. I made a lot of mistakes. I lost a lot of money. I made some money along the way. I learned a lot of hard lessons. And one thing I did learn is that we learn everything in life almost from two things. Number one, from mentors, and number two, from our mistakes. And if we can have learn from mentors, people like you on this podcast, and people who have made mistakes in the past, we can hopefully not repeat those on our journey. I would totally agree with you, Paul. And as they say, the success is falling fast and falling forward. You know, it doesn't matter how many times you fail. It matters, you know, the number of times you want to get back up and keep pushing. I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm a big believer of uh, psychology and, you know, how you tune your mind, your attitude, and you keep learning. And the part about mentors is, you know, why reinvent the wheel? If you can have veterans, uh, you know, guide you who've been there, 
you know, yeah. that's, that's the, uh, that's the success mantra right there. So I couldn't, you know, uh, agree with you more. Uh, so Paul, I know at Wellings Capital, you invest in uh, self storages, right? So for people who may not have heard uh, self storage, or perhaps they may have seen a self storage, what it's like, uh, could you maybe give us some uh, preliminary background as to what a self storage is, how it works from a business side as well? Yeah, so self-storage is both a uh, retail business and real estate. And there are 53,000 or so self-storage facilities in the U.S. That's about the same as all the McDonald's, Subway, and Starbucks combined in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And a large percentage of those are run by mom-and-pop owners who don't have the resources or the desire or the knowledge uh, to upgrade and to maximize their income and value. So sure. it does provide a great opportunity for investors. The premise behind self-storage, the first self-storage facility was in the oil fields of Texas in the 1960s. And then mm. people commercialized it through the 70s and mainly in the 80s and rolled it out across the U.S. The thing we love about self-storage is that it's, it's not recession-proof by any means. Mm -hmm. But it does well in good times because people are filling up their Amazon or their Walmart carts. And sometimes they have parents who are passing away and they need more stuff. They need places to store their more sure, stuff. Sure. And so it seems to expand well in good times. But in bad times, we experience the four Ds, which are dislocation, downsizing, death, and divorce. And during those times, People are often, you know, dislocation sort of a catch-all, but it includes, it could include, you know, uh, maybe uprooting from their job, maybe moving, maybe sure. downsizing, you know, from a larger house to a smaller house. Sure, sure. Um, those types of things are times when people rent self-storage. And another thing about self-storage that's really interesting is if I was charging $1,000 a month for a rental home or apartment, and I raised your rent 6%, you might move rather than sign that piece of paper that locks you in for $60 a month, which is 720 a year. But if I raise your rent on a $100 self-storage facility on a month-to-month -month lease by 6%, you're probably not gonna spend a Saturday, get your friends together, rent a U-Haul to take your stuff down the street. Not a fun experience. <laughs> yeah, just to save six bucks a month, especially when you think, I'm only gonna be here a few more months anyway, which is a common misconception sure. among mm -hmm. self-storage renters. Good, good. And uh, help us understand, Paul, there that, um, you know, like for example, when I rented the self-storage last time, right? Uh, those add-ons, you know, whether you are purchasing, oh, I don't have a lock or, hey, can I maybe purchase a tape? So from a business standpoint, I know that, uh, you know, the add-on services, as we call it, they tend to be very lucrative. And I found that self-storage are in a perfect spot that 
uh, you, you know, let's say if the consumer has not come prepared there, whether it's your small ropes or the locks or the scissors and, uh, you know, all the paraphernalia that comes with this, right? Uh, those small upcharges that come uh, with some of the, uh, or the premium, as I call it, like, you know, you can buy a lock by going to, you know, your local store for like, let's say uh, $10, but you could end up buying this here for $12, $15. So could you give us some insights into how are we optimizing the self-storage business from an operational perspective to uh, kind of, you know, gain more uh, income uh, into the business? You know, when I, uh, a couple of years ago, when I first heard about the concept of value adds and self-storage, I laughed because I thought, well, I can, I know about value adds in a multifamily. I wrote a book on multifamily and uh, you don't have carpet and cabinets and paint and lighting and so many things to do value add and to increase the rents. Self-storage, you know, when someone leaves, all you have to do is sweep it out. It's four pieces of sheet metal, a piece of con- a slab of concrete, and a door. Sure. How can you get value adds in that? Right. Well, you're right. You know, there's all kinds of retail items you can add, like locks, boxes, tape, scissors. Mm-hmm. You can also uh, charge an admin fee. You can charge late fees. You can actually uh, add U-Haul. Now, let's do the math on this. Sure. So mm-hmm. adding U-Haul typically adds three to five, two to five thousand dollars a month to wow. the revenue, but there's no significant cost to that. I mean, you have to have space for the U-Hauls to park. Sure. Mm-hmm. But you get three to five, two to five thousand in commission. Let's say it's four thousand dollars. Now let's go back a step to why I love commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. Did you know that the Forbes 400, the wealthiest people in the world, almost all invest in commercial real estate. And one of the reasons is this value formula. It's math. Basically, the value formula is the value of a property is Mm -hmm. the net operating income divided by the rate of return or the cap rate. The cap rate, correct. Mm -hmm. And so if we can increase the net operating income, and sometimes we can shrink the cap rate, we can significantly increase value and even increase more uh, by using safe leverage. So right. let's go back to our U-Haul. So we add 4,000 a month, which is 48,000 a year to our revenue. Sure. That goes straight to income. Right. And so if we add 48,000 a year to our net operating income, let's say we're at a cap rate of 6%. Sure. So $48,000 per year divided by 0.06. Right. Look at that. we just added to the value of facility. Now let's say we bought that facility for 3 million Mm -hmm. and that was 2 million in debt plus 1 million in equity. We just added 80% to our equity from one stroke of a pen by U-Haul in. And of course, getting U-Haul up and running and implemented for a number of months. Sure, sure. added 80% to our equity. That's a pretty powerful value add. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, going back to these uh, facilities, Paul, right? Like, for example, as you indicated, right, people are buying more and more stuff, storing, so the demand is definitely going higher. Uh, what does it go into uh, finding the right locations? Is it, uh, you know, something uh, closer to like developing neighborhoods or maybe perhaps closer to the highways and things like that? What factors do you consider into 
like uh, you know acquiring a sales storage yeah. what 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 kind of plays into that yeah, so we recently uh, invested in a self-storage facility. It was a ground-up development about 25 miles northwest of Minneapolis. And mm -hmm. the uh, average neighborhood and the, the average demographics included a neighborhood income in a three-mile radius of about 98,000 average. Uh, it was high. on a main mm -hmm. road in the city. Mm -hmm. And it only had two square feet of self-storage per person in that three mile radius. And there was virtually no climate controlled self storage and you need that in Minnesota. Mm -hmm, so sure. the factors we wanna look at, number one, are, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, number of square feet of storage per person. So in an urban area, you might look at a one mile radius. In a normal suburban area, two to three to four mile radius, call it three. Mm -hmm. And then in a rural location, which I wouldn't recommend anyway, mm -hmm. you might look at a five to 10 mile radius. I see. So you're looking for 10 years ago, a study showed that there's about an average of seven square feet of storage per person in the U.S., much more in places like Florida, Texas, and California that don't have basements and use their attics much, Sure. Mm -hmm. and somewhat less in Midwestern areas like Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois, et cetera, that have a lot of basement storage and they have a milder climate. That was 10 years ago. We believe that seven square feet now should be closer to nine square feet per person. The second factor is the demographics. We like to look at the income in the area. It doesn't have to be real high, mm -hmm. but we want it to be above average income. Third, we want it to be on a main road. Fourth, we want it to have a lot of visibility on that main road. And fifth, if possible, we like it to be in a location with a lot of barriers to entry so we don't get a lot of new competition coming in because that's the biggest risk in self-storage is a new competitor popping up down the street. Sure, and, and I'm glad you bring that up, Paul, that uh, right now we find ourselves that, you know, Cube Storage or Cube Smart or Self Storage, which are, you know, a lot of these are bigger Wall Street players who are coming in and installing, you know, let's say multi-story, climate-controlled, uh, automated locks, uh, surveillance systems, you know, elevators in some of them and things like that. Uh, so what's the value play? Are you maybe focused more on the mom and pop operators and, uh, you know, acquiring them, perhaps uh, multiple of them via using your fund and optimizing them? Is that the thesis of uh, your investment, more or less? Yeah. The, about 75% of the self-storage facilities in the U.S. are run by small operators and about 50 of the 75 are mom and pop operators. Mm -hmm. A lot of those are in the path of progress. A lot of them, like I'm thinking of one right now in Roswell, Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, we both know the operator of that, uh, of that facility in Roswell. You and I both rep, uh, have invested with them, I believe. Sure. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the, uh, they were a small little sleepy town way outside of Atlanta when that facility was built in 1976. Sure. But now that's a booming suburb of Atlanta and Absolutely. it's really hard to find any land to build on near there. And so it's a great location to have a self-storage facility. Now by buying that from a mom and pop, the operator was able to add a beautiful showroom locks, boxes, tape, scissors, U-Haul, all that, and significantly expand the income and also the operations. And so that is 
the priority, the goal, the end game, the beginning game is to acquire from a mom and pop, pay them sure. a fair price. Mm -hmm. the, the middle game is to upgrade the uh, income and of mm -hmm. course the value. Sure. And then the end game is to put a bunch of those together in a portfolio and sell it to a REIT for a compressed cap rate, which means a higher price. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that, Paul. And now when you package all this, right? So how is all the financing handled in this? Like let's say when you're acquiring this, uh, I know like for example, in the multifamily side of things, we know that you're going to Fannie Mae and uh, you know, Freddie Mac uh, or even bridge loans and things like that. Would you share some insight into what goes on uh, behind the scenes, like how you're evaluating, is it strictly NOI based or are you like, is the lender looking at some value add services and things like that? And more importantly, who are the lenders? Like what, what sort of uh, details go into financing of these? Yeah, so it's very similar to multifamily. It's using the same formulas, mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. reserves, similar, um, uh, you know, similar appraisal metrics, uh, similar interest rates, similar, you know, interest only loan, mm -hmm. you know, five, seven, 10 or 12 years, uh, five, interest only the first three, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, Fannie and Freddie love self-storage and they're mm -hmm. doing those. They love mobile home parks, probably at least as much, maybe more. And um, the uh, another, there's a, there's a bank, I'm trying to think, it's in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's Live Oak Bank and they are really aggressive in the self-storage arena as well. And so mm -hmm. that's a, a bank to, to look for if you're looking to acquire, especially a one to $5 million self-storage facility. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit, uh, Paul. Given the COVID pandemic that, uh, you know, sort of happened and it's, we are still- I, I that. never heard about that. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say this, the coronavirus, right? <laughs> if that's okay, how they're right. familiar, right? Uh -huh. So uh, here we are, you know, like the main businesses and, you know, a lot of small businesses are hurt. The pandemic has pretty much gone on to the main street, hurting all the businesses, wiping out a lot of blue collar jobs. Uh, without a question, we, we are going to see the A's compressing to B classes. And of course, a lot of people are going to downsize or even for that matter, businesses are going to shutter the doors and bring all their assets and equipment down into your storage facilities, right? I never so, thought of that, but you're probably right. Right. So uh, that, that's, that, I mean, you know, talk about, you know, someone paying a lot much uh, rent in an industrial facility, like, you know, let's say a neighborhood plumber for that matter, or a heating technician, he might say, hey, you know what, why am I renting this space? Let me downsize, let me store all my stuff, and I'm, I'm probably going to operate a a lot of stuff out of my, uh, you know, out of my trucks or for that matter, right? So where, where I'm going with this, Paul, is that how do you see this uh, uh, playing out? Uh, because in my mind, I, I, you know, the wound of the pandemic is deep. I mean, we are incurring record uh, debt right now, whether it's family debt or whether it's national debt. So the no picture that you can paint is rosy. How do you see this playing out, uh, you know, at a broader scale, whether it's commercial in general or whether towards your self-storage facilities in general? 
Yeah, there's so much we could talk about on this. Absolutely. But here's the real problem with everything that you or I could say, and that is we don't know what we don't know. When have we been faced with a pandemic at a size? Well, it's been 102 years. When that have we correct. been faced with a pandemic at the same time as by far, far record unemployment, even if it's some of it's temporary, a lot of it's not, right. a record amount of debt, record amount of printing of money at the national level. Absolutely. Uh, possibility that the pandemic might come back and all the fear with that, that it might just keep coming back and this might be the beginning of the rest of our lives. You know, right. I got my first haircut today in a mask. I didn't really enjoy that. But um, what, if it, what if that's going to be it from now on? So I right. don't know what I don't know. I do believe this, though. Howard Marks, in his classic book, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds in Your Favor, he is called the king of distressed debt. He's been doing distressed debt since 1988. Mm. And he said in his book, I hope I never live to see another downturn like 2008. Oh, boy. <laughs> A lot of distressed debt and some distressed assets in 2008. Mm. Well, let me tell you this. He is now gearing up the largest distressed debt fund in history, at least in his history, I should say. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so are a lot of other players who've already collected tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars getting ready for this. So at least Howard Marks and some other very large players believe this is going to be a very, very serious plague um, <clears throat> on business. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities to acquire distressed debt, distressed assets of all types. Uh, we all know that hotels are going to have a, a terrible amount of time, especially uh, independent hotels, but also sure. chain hotels. Right. We know that retail was already teetering on the edge. I mean, listen to this. There were about 12,000 retail closings in 2019 in one wow. of the strongest economies in American history. Correct. What's going to happen now? And we've already seen JCPenney following the footsteps of Kmart and Sears and declare bankruptcy. Sure. We saw Hertz declare bankruptcy in the last 48 hours. So I think we're going to see a massive, massive amount of defaults. And those who are ready, you know, people have been criticizing Warren Buffett for years for having $126 billion in cash on hand. Did you notice he didn't spend it when he could have in March sure. during the downturn? I think he knows that the worst is still coming. And of course, he's all about, you know, pro-America and the, the wonder, wonderful future of America. So he doesn't want to say it. But I believe that he and many others think that this is going to be the worst, um, worst downturn in recent history, if not all history, and therefore the best opportunity to acquire a whole lot of assets and make a whole lot of, create a whole lot of wealth. That is that is very enlightening. Thank you for those wise words uh, there, Paul. Uh, another thing I will add to all this uh, muddy waters, as I say, it is is also the insurance side of these things. You know, lot of you know uh, offices or small businesses have been closed. You know, and what people perhaps don't realize is uh, all these buildings and suits are all living and breathing entity. You cannot just, you know, turn off the lights and air conditioning and things like that. You have to worry about air circulation and mildew mold issues, you know. 
So I, I see this as a mini crisis building as well around the insurance and litigation side of these things is that when businesses are coming back or perhaps will come back in the next few months that they're gonna start opening the doors, I mean, they're going to find lots of trouble around behind the walls and things like that, you know? Uh, could you could you maybe uh, uh, have some comment on that, Paul, as to you know how that's gonna play out as well? Yeah, well, a friend of mine in your area, actually, he has, I think he rents, uh, well, at least $3 million in annual uh, lease payments he makes mm-hmm. office space around the uh, DC, Maryland area. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he said that they have realized they do not need all the office space they have. And they're already starting to negotiate with their landlords to break those leases. Well, he's just one guy and they're sure. a very wealthy company. Mm-hmm. If that really does Um, You know, if that really is the wave of the future for multiple reasons, we can imagine that it could be. Um, I think offices are going to be deeply, deeply hurt. And like you said, there's all the other secondary issues that become primary if you let them. Sure. And that is Mm -hmm. all the the problems with the buildings, the litigation. I just can't imagine. Um, This is going to be, uh, I mean, as sad as this is, and I mean, literally, it's tragic. I think it's going to, I think this is going to be the the best time ever for lawyers. And I hate that, but I think it's true. No, I know. These are very, very, I think, very serious, uncertain times. And I, uh, I mean, a lot of pain is yet to come. And I do not know if this is going to be as rosy as saying that, hey, we're going to thrive in commercial markets. I just don't know. I, I somehow, one part of me probably sometimes thinks that, oh, you know, we're still sliding, you know, I just don't know that, oh, the roses are still blooming, you know, Uh, would you think, like, I know, uh, as we are recording this uh, in late May, uh, incidentally, you have uh, Bigger Pockets uh, show coming on this Saturday here, where you're going to talk about uh, the crisis investing 101, and how different markets and different cities are going to recover. Uh, Could you share some uh, lights on, on that, Paul, as to, you know, what, what is your take on some of this Yeah, so Adam Data Solutions, that's A-T-T-O-M, did a study that was published a couple, maybe six weeks ago, about what they think are the most likely cities to recover most quickly and which ones will be the slowest. Ten of the top, uh, the best cities were, no surprise, in Texas. Mm -hmm. They think that they'll bounce back the the quickest surprisingly, California only had one county, actually, these were done by county, one Mm -hmm. county that was on the list of the worst 50, and that was Shasta County, where Redding, California is. Mm -hmm. In the whole western U.S., there was one, only one other county, and it was near uh, Phoenix. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, Really, really in the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, New Jersey, shockingly, had, I think, 13 of the worst counties. Uh, they think that will take the longest to bounce back. Florida had about 10 of the worst counties. They think they're going to get hit. Now, they measured this. uh, This was in terms of real estate, by the way. Mm -hmm. They measured this in terms of loans underwater or near underwater, Mm -hmm. foreclosures in the fourth quarter of 2019, back when things were great. Um, They measure it in terms of uh, job losses, things like that. What they didn't 
um, do a good job of, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they did a great job of measuring how hard COVID hit in these areas and how hard, uh, really how deep the job losses were, because obviously the, the job losses in, let's say, New Jersey are going to be very different from a place like Idaho. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, but that's, that's, that's what happened in, in that group. Now, there's a, the analysis I'm going to be doing tomorrow. Of course, this will be long, you know, before this is your podcast is published, is of the um, ratio between rents and property uh, sales, home ownership sales. And uh, of course, we want to get the highest ratio of rent to property value or property sale price. And so I'm going to be analyzing the top 25 rent to price markets tomorrow on my show. Now, you may be surprised to find out that Detroit, by far, and I mean by a huge margin, almost double the next competitors wins in the rent to price ratio. And mainly the reason is that the average home price is only 35,500, but the average rent in 2020 was 1116. And so uh, Detroit was ranked number one in 2015 and they still are today. We also have Birmingham, Alabama, Cleveland, Ohio, Baltimore, Maryland. I can imagine, I was just gonna say that Paul there is that a lot of these, I think what, when you said rent to price ratio, I, I clearly remember all these stats from uh, back in the days from 08, 09, when, uh, you know, I was extremely buying these properties voraciously. That ratio works in a lot of darling cities, like, you know, as you pointed out, the Ohio's, the Indianapolis, the Alabama's, the Tennessee, you know, Memphis is another town, Baltimore, Detroit, of course, you know, so the, those cash flowing towns where I think the neighborhoods have to be safe, it just works. And these downturns, and I, I went through the 08 uh, crisis as well, and we found that these um, you know blue collar neighborhoods, safer neighborhoods, tend to be very resilient. You know, and that's why we say sometimes that yes, single family has its own place and in general. You know, mm -hmm. so I thank you, Paul. I greatly appreciate it. I know we are as we are recording this at the uh, you know end of May. I think the pandemic is still unfolding. The states are just starting to reopen, perhaps really county by county, city by city for that matter. And we don't know really whether the virus is still gonna make its second comeback and what that's going to uh, entail in terms of, you know, for the cities, the health practices and things in general, right? right. So I really feel that the pain is still ahead. The things are still unfolding. And I think it's a wait, watch, and uh, see what that uh, is going to do to our economy and real estate right. sector in general. So with that, Paul, I thank you for your time today. Uh, I would love to have you back again. You bring in a wealth of experience, knowledge, and some practical uh, knowledge that all listeners got to hear. Uh, would you mind sharing, Paul, how listeners can get back in touch with you and also your podcast, How to uh, not Lose Money? Yeah, so we have a, a wealth building podcast. It is called How to Lose Money. And we uh, talk about the uh, failures and pain of successful entrepreneurs and investors on their road to the top. So we don't have to repeat those mistakes. Absolutely. Um, the uh, best place to get hold of me is at my website, wellingscapital.com. That's W E L L I N G S 
C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate your time. And I look forward to, uh, you know, chatting with you again in future. Thanks. Right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Sakar. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.